everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 45. Today I'm going to do an update on lumber and the whole COVID situation. I've talked about this in the past as it relates specifically to softwoods and kind of hinted how things were going with hardwoods. Well, today I want to follow up again and talk a little bit more specifically about hardwoods, actually even more specifically logistics and shipping, because that's the real problem right now. But then I've also got a few questions just to kind of round out the show. We're going to talk a little bit about um, some follow-up on some of the um, wood color change type stuff. I've got a great voicemail on that. Some odd plywood uh, questions. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about CITES, just real briefly about CITES. And then I have the simplest question that has uh, the simplest question to answer that has ever been sent in. I'll save that one for last. So anyway, guys, let's let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about what it's actually doing to the specifically the hardwood lumber industry. So, and you know, actually, I shouldn't even say specific to the hardwood lumber industry. We're seeing this happen across multiple industries. Um, over at the Hand Tool School, I do a, a live broadcast once a month for apprentices, and we got into a conversation about the fact that. Uh, you know, everybody seems to be on back order when it comes to hand planes. Um, you know, the, the Lee Valley guys, the Lee Nielsen people, it's like all on back order. And it's like, man, what what's going on? And this transitions to other industries where we're starting to see things that have never been on back order before. Suddenly now there's a two, three week lead time on shipping on something, you know, like uh, I've even run into this with like uh, um uh, nutrition, uh, you know, um, gosh, why can't I speak like triathlon nutrition, drink mixes, things like that for, for, uh, endurance athletes where, you know, it used to be, you'd order something, you'd get it within a couple of days, like Amazon style. And now suddenly it's like, well, a week or two may go by, or that particular product is on back order. And it's like, man, what, what's, what's the issue? What's the common denominator here? And really what it comes down to is the ability to get raw materials, um, the ability to transport those raw materials to manufacturers in order to actually make their products. And then you've got this whole kind of shortage of labor issue that's going on where certainly as companies started to fall on hard times during shutdown and things like that in the middle of last year, uh, there were a lot of people that got laid off. A lot of people certainly lost their jobs and business hasn't rebounded quite so much that, you know, a lot of these people have been hired back. So you've got short staffing going on in manufacturers. You've also got short staffing going on in the suppliers of raw materials, short staffing that's happening in the shipping lines, short staffing at the ports, and even companies that are fully staffed aren't able to work as efficiently because of things like social distancing, because of additional protocols that require, um, uh, well, yeah, social distancing is the big one, but but additional screening, additional steps in the process in order to protect their workers, it is slowing things down. And this is starting to be a domino effect. The, the real problem is, as I said, these raw materials that are coming into these manufacturers and they can't get them. And what's happening is things are starting to stack up at the ports. And you know, it's not like there's been a whole lot of additional ships that have been built. You know, oh, okay, you know, suddenly 10 more people, uh, 10 more steamships have been built that are now uh, carrying containers across the ocean. And, you know, you find a lot of products that are, 
you know, made in the USA or made in North America. Maybe they are made in North America, but where do the raw materials come from? Certainly some of them may come from North America, but really this is a global sourcing economy. When you start talking raw materials, they're coming usually from other places. And these are, you know, inventories that the manufacturers have to keep up with. And they've been okay for six, seven months. And now those inventories are starting to, to fall apart. So what we're seeing on the shipping lines is same number of container ships that are out there on the oceans, but space is really tight. Everything coming from like Asia to the East Coast of the US and the West Coast, or I should say the East Coast of North America and the West Coast of North America is super, super tight on space. Everything coming from Europe across the Atlantic to the US is super tight. Now, export-wise, uh, materials coming from North America, like to Asia, North America, to Europe, the space on those is pretty steady, but there are no openings. You know, those ships are, are, are full as they're going across, but there's not quite such a huge wait list or backlog of stuff waiting for the next ship to come into port to refill and move out. But the opposite direction, everything coming into North America, space is super tight to the point where they're overfilling some of these container ships. And that, of course, is taking longer to, to load, taking longer to unload, and taking longer from uh, an important customs processing. What is coming off the ship? The more the stuff that's on that ship, the more chances are that you know illegal stuff could be shipped through or, or uh, checks and balances could be missed. Add to that fact, as I said before, short staffing and just lower efficiency due to uh, COVID protection protocols for those port workers and those shipping workers, it is a nightmare. We've got materials backing up at the port, waiting on a container ship just to carry them abroad. So bringing this back to the lumber industry, of course, lumber, when you really think about it, is a raw material. We have a bit of a backlog literally a back log where there are logs that have stacked up. You know, social distancing has never really been an issue when it comes to actually harvesting trees because there aren't huge teams of people out there that are close contact with one of cutting down trees, at least not in the hardwood lumber industry. If you're talking about like pulp mills, paper mills and things like that, even then most of that harvesting is done clear cutting via mechanization. You know, big machines like you think of like combines for harvesting wheat, same type of thing for harvesting um, uh, uh, small trees for, for pulp mills and things like that. The hardwood world, no, they're felling two to three trees and then pulling them out of the forest. So that has been able to, to carry on. But the actual sawing of those logs into boards, well, many of the sawmills have shut down or the sawmills that remain are short-staffed and unable to do the work they did before because of those uh, COVID protocols, slowing everything down. But that may not see the biggest slowdown. Maybe they're they're able to continue work as normal. It's when those, those logs are sawn into boards, those boards are loaded onto a truck and that truck is shipped off to a port. And we're talking about exotics, you're talking about things coming out of the African continent or things coming out of Europe or coming out of South America. There always is a break of, of bulk. There's always that point where these various sawmills are putting things on a truck and then sending them to a distribution center, usually a port. In the case of Africa, there's really not that many ports that lumber is running through. And the other thing is in those ports, the infrastructure is not super, super huge that there's multiple cranes moving containers in and on of ships. Same thing you'll find with some of the ports coming out of, of South America and even so much in Europe. 
Um, certainly as you move to a port, the population density becomes much, much, much higher and COVID protocols become that much more serious. So we have trucks filled with lumber that are just sitting at the port. Sometimes three, four, five months sitting at a port waiting for space on a container ship. Now, one of the things in, in the U.S. that was a big deal, and actually this is probably globally, but I'm just speaking from a from a ethnocentric perspective, being a U.S. citizen, we had this conversation about what businesses were essential and what businesses were non-essential, which businesses could stay open and which ones had to close down. Well, the lumber industry has lumped into construction, and in many instances, we are considered essential. But there are caveats to that. There were some lumber yards that were actually shut down because they didn't actually do uh, any transformation services, any millwork services, and they got shut down because near inventory was good. The same thing was starting to happen uh, abroad where some of these companies that were um, not, not being shut down, but the shipments were being delayed because it was more important to move other goods. You know, at one point when everybody was running out of PPE, that was the important thing. We've got to get this material ship. We've got to get um, things for, for health and welfare and, and agriculture and things like that going so that people aren't starving and that bare, uh, bare necessities are being met. And, and lumber wasn't considered as high a priority. Certainly, as construction demands have continued to climb as kind of the world has tried to resume and get back to work, we've seen these major shortages in the softwood industry, right? We've already talked about that. The framing lumber to actually put up all these stick frames has been stressed for quite some time. The pressure treatment plants were running into problems because of short staffing, because of decreased efficiency due to the whole social distancing idea. That has already happened. Well, as you have framed that house and you've maybe sheathed the house and you've put up the sheetrock inside, when you start turning to trim molding or to stair treads or to the hardwood floors, the finishing touches on that house tends to be hardwood. And that life cycle has now come around. And now all this construction that was seriously delayed because of lack of softwoods that was able to kind of trickle down, get the materials they need and finish up the construction, they've moved on to a point where now the demand is for hardwoods. And the spike in demand for hardwoods has gone up across the globe huge, huge demand for hardwoods in China. So there's a, a, a large amount of export coming out of North America, coming out of Europe into Asia to handle the Chinese demand. This has actually already caused some um, lumber mills to actually have to shut down. I talked about this a couple episodes ago where the demand for Chinese lumber was so high that many lumber mills shifted their business model to supply more, a higher percentage of their outgoing lumber was going to China. Well, then the supplies started to dry up and they couldn't meet the demands for Chinese um, uh, import. So the Chinese took their business elsewhere. Now suddenly a company that was vested 80% into export to China now lost that 80% of the business and they shuttered their doors. So that um, you know makes the issue worse as the demand for China continues to grow. Plus the demand domestically here in North America has continued to grow for hardwoods and there's, there's nobody to supply it. And the lumber is there, the boards are there, but they're sitting in a port. They're waiting, just waiting their turn to get loaded onto a ship. And as every single ship is taking longer to load, when that ship departs, there isn't necessarily another one like empty waiting in line, like taxi cabs at the airport. Sometimes there is no ship waiting. Sometimes that ship might still be a couple thousand miles out into the ocean and it may be on its way back, or maybe it's still on its way out. 
And that's what I'm talking about, where it's not like there's been a bunch of people building shipping lines, you know, and suddenly, oh, now we've got a bunch of extra ships. That's almost a constant. We're not seeing that growth in the number of uh, container ships out there. So they continue to fill up. They continue to um, not take on nearly as much lumber as they used to before because of the demand for other, quote, more essential goods, more essential raw materials. And this is a major issue. Some of the carriers, of course, are, are doing the best to deal with this. But, you know, the thing we haven't begun to talk about is the cost associated with all this. You know, you, you, you want to think that, you know, no one's going to take advantage of COVID. And let's just be naive. Let's just be very optimistic and say no one is taking advantage of COVID with pricing. But pricing is still going up because of the... Um, just increased cost of doing business. When you talk about decreased performance, um, decreased efficiency, I should say, because of COVID restrictions and COVID protocols, there's also additional just red tape that people have to deal with, additional paperwork, additional delays and things. And when you can't turn your container ship around as often as you did before and say the overhead is still the same, which by the way, it's not, you know, fuel is still not the same. Um, but just say that overhead stayed the same. Well, if you were able to move that container ship 10 times in an average year, and now you're only able to move it five times, in order to keep your margins the same, you've got to charge more per container ship. So the cost of shipping, the logistical cost, the cost to get things through a port has gone up dramatically. Moreover, the ports charge when a container sits on the port and isn't moving out of the port, they charge something called a demerit fee those demerit fees are still happening. They're still going out. <laughs> the, the, real, the real racket here is a lot of times is because there's no place for that to go. Um, there's not enough workers to actually load that or the process to load a container onto the ship has slowed down due to these COVID protocols. So they're continuing to charge demerit, which then the, the shippers and the importers, uh, like the company I work for, are saying, well, whoa, 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 we don't want to pay these huge demerit costs. So hold on to that lumber. Don't move it to the port. Well, guess what happens? If you don't move to the port, it doesn't get a spot in line for the next ship. If you know that there's a ship that's going to be landing in a couple of days, you can't just like show up that day it arrives and hope to get on that ship. Maybe, maybe if you're lucky, maybe if you know a few people and, you know, have a little magic handshake with a hundred dollar bill on your hand, although it would probably be a much larger bill than a hundred dollar bills. Um, <laughs> Not saying that happens, but come on, folks. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, there may be ways to jump the line, but really, no, I'm sorry. If you just showed up today and there are seven trucks that have been sitting here waiting, paying to marriage fees, no, they're going to get loaded first. So then there's this whole issue of, well, how do we play this game? How do we avoid paying the demerit fees and tell our our contacts to go ahead and move that those boards um, uh, off their lot and onto a port? At the same time, you've got this sawmill that has finite space and has already fulfilled an order for you know so many thousand board feet of say African mahogany or something, and they just want to ship it because they need the room in order to start working on another order for somebody else or to start creating a near inventory so that they can sell it to someone else. They got to get the stuff out of there. And frankly, the minute a sawmill ships, puts it on a truck and it leaves their yard, they start invoicing us. So yeah, of course they want to do that. They want to get invoices out there. So, you know, it, it's a bit of a um, opposing interest, if you will. As the importer, we're thinking, whoa, we don't want to pay these demerit costs. So hold it until we're, we're certain it can get on a ship. The shipper or the, the manufacturer, if you will, the, the sawmill is thinking, no, 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 no. I got to get it out of here. I want to start invoicing as soon as possible. 
what this results in is a great big, forgive the pun, log jam at the port where you've got just stuff piling up to get onto these these ships and only so many ships going out, people vying for space on that ship. Then it gets here. Say it lands on North American shores. It's sitting in the port of Norfolk or the port of Baltimore or Philadelphia or Port Arthur or something like that. And there's only like two guys to unload it. You know, Maybe there were 20 guys to unload the ship. Now there's only two. Um, yeah, you can imagine the... <laughs> Again, forgive the pun, the logjam that happens on the receiving end of things. And there continue to be COVID restrictions that are slowing down the processing of this material coming out of the port. Of course, demerits charges are happening on this end as well. So it is, it's shocking. Well, we had an example of um, some plywood that was coming over from Europe and we were invoiced by the manufacturer, you know, AKA it left their yard, it left their plant. We were invoiced and you know it was projected that it would ship uh, like four days later. So we checked in about seven days later. Nope, it hadn't shipped yet, but don't worry, it'll ship out in the next couple of days. Long story short, 35 days go by and the material has still not left the port. Now, we had been under the impression that it was already on the ocean, that it had already been moving. In fact, paperwork had been processed to the point where virtually or Paperwork-wise, it looked like it was in transit, but no, it was actually just checked into the port. It's kind of like when you when you view that like um, UPS tracking code and you see, okay, delivery schedule for such and such a time. It's been arrival scan in Louisville, um, departure scan uh, from Louisville. So it's it's been scanned for departure from Louisville, but did the truck actually leave? You know, the only thing the departure scan means is somebody scanned it as it went on to the truck itself. Um, there can be more sophisticated uh, shipping software out there. Um, believe me, <laughs> years ago when I was in IT, I worked with a team who actually did some work for UPS Logistics. But ideally, when it is scanned and put into a container, or excuse me, when the container's put on a ship, it's scanned and it says, okay, now it's on the water. Well, if that ship actually didn't leave because they were still loading it, or possibly there was a little snag somewhere and things got held up as they were processing some of the other containers that went onto that ship. And in many instances, those containers, or excuse me, those ships are full of containers, but they're not actually setting sail due to any number of things. There can even be quarantine restrictions preventing that ship from leaving. So we had a, a shipment that we had expected to be on the water to be arriving any day, some further um, inquiries and a lot of digging deeper to get beyond just what it said on paper. And we discovered, nope, our agent on the ground actually went to the port and said, no, I'm looking at the ship. It's still sitting here. Like, here's, here's the ship. Oh, and look, there's your container number. There it is nestled on the top. And holy crap, it's been 30 days and we were expecting any minute and it's actually still in the port. So this is the stuff that's really starting to, to bite people. Domestic materials, you're going to have a little less of an issue, but you're still seeing logistics and shipping issues with uh, whether it be by rail or by truck. There can be material that's ending up at a distribution center being loaded onto a common carrier or something like that, and it's causing massive issues. The best way you can kind of ensure a speedier delivery is if you're dealing with a company that maybe has their own fleet of trucks. For instance, the company I work for, we, we operate our own fleet of trucks for delivering to our customers. We have a large near inventory. When we're moving material and it's going on our trucks, we have control over what it is, how it's being packaged, all that fun stuff that's going to kind of 
make things smoother, make packing, loading, and actually getting off the off the yard a lot faster. But if you're dealing with a common carrier that's dealing with material being shipped into a distribution warehouse and maybe sitting at the warehouse and, and you know there could be any number of products in that warehouse being moved around, again, being beholden to short staff in the warehouse, social distancing measures being put in place in the warehouse that slow down that efficiency, you're running into the same issue a lot closer to home. You know, instead of having to cross an ocean, it's maybe having to cross an ocean of concrete on Interstate 70 or I-80 or something like that. It's the same story, just substitute a truck for a container ship. So the good news, I think, is at the source, it looks like a lot of the sawmills are starting to recover and have kind of hit their operating rhythm, figured out how to deal with the short staff, how to deal with COVID protocols, and, and how to maintain kind of a normal level of efficiency. It all comes down to the shipping and logistics side of things that's really throwing a monkey wrench into things and dramatically increasing the price of your hardwoods of your hand plane, of your hand saw, or your table saw, any of your goods out there that are being manufactured and having to be shipped, it's a major, major issue. So I wish I could say we're coming out of it. I wanna be optimistic and say we're coming out of it because you know at the source, things are getting a little bit easier, but man, it's gonna be a long time before we see some of these shipping nightmares uh, fixed. You know, It may be an Amazon world when it comes to ordering things from Amazon, but the rest of the, the world, the rest of industries are having to figure out how to do this. Because you know what? <laughs> Let's bring another point. I love Amazon. Don't get me wrong. I order from Amazon all the time. But when Amazon garners such a huge percentage of the shipping logistics pie, and so many people want a piece of that Amazon pie, you better believe they're getting, you know, hey, I have a contract to work with Amazon or I have a contract with some lumber guy over here. Let's go with the Amazon one because maybe we can get more of their business. That's just a fact of life, folks. So, you know, there's every chance that that shipping and logistics is also slowed down because of increased competition from the Amazon monster. And it's funny because I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I mean, I have the greatest respect for the efficiency that Amazon has created. They're basically keeping the world running right now as, as countries have gone into lockdown. You know, thank goodness for Amazon to be able to keep things going. Thank goodness for Netflix as well. So, you know, it, it's it's one of those kind of blessing and, and, and a curse, really. You can't really get mad at Amazon because we all lean on them so much. But at the same time, you know, it may be gobbling up some of the shipping and logistics things. So anyway, that's my, my harping on, on, uh, on the whole COVID thing and what it's meaning for us. But kind of somewhat related to this Amazon uh, problem, we'll call it that, and, and gobbling up the shipping logistics. Uh, I got an email from Michael who said, um, in relation to some of the plywood episodes I had, and he said, what kind of plywood do you get from the big box store? And, you know, you, know, you go and I see, I, I talked in the plywood episodes about understanding who the manufacturer is and looking at the manufacturer websites to figure out how they're making their panel. But Michael brought up a good point. He said, you know, I've been to like a Home Depot and I've seen Columbia Forest uh, products panels there. I've seen States Industries, you know, is, is that the same thing? Do you go and you buy those products? And it's something that I didn't bring up in the plywood episodes because of the fact that Lowe's, Home Depot, to a lesser extent, somebody like Menards are such large retailers. They control a great deal of leverage at the negotiation table. And Home Depot says, I want to meet a certain price point for, for a sheet of hardwood plywood. So they go to Columbia Forest Products and say, okay, guys, 
we want our oak plywood to be at this price point. Columbia Forest says, whoa, that's a lot cheaper than what we normally make it. And Home Depot says, no, I understand that, but we need 35 containers of it or 350 containers of it. And the guys at Columbia Forest go, oh crap, Like we can't walk away from this. This is a huge deal of business. We wanna do business with Home Depot because the size of their orders is enormous. So okay, Home Depot, we'll figure out a way that we can make that price point work. And this is the same thing I've talked about with um, you know, cutting corners in order to make a price point work. It may still be a good quality panel, but certain things have been omitted in order to make a price point. So Columbia Forest Products makes a really good plywood panel. But the plywood panel you buy that says Columbia Forest on it from Home Depot and the plywood panel you buy that says Columbia Forest from like an independent lumberyard are not always the same panel. They oftentimes, and I'm, I'm pointing out Columbia Forest, but this applies to a lot of manufacturers, most manufacturers for that matter. They make a specific product for Home Depot and for Lowe's. Um, Home Depot has been a little better about it because they've branded some of their own products. Think of their, um, their decking line, their composite decking line called Veranda. I was actually at the Fiberon plant in uh, South Carolina and I was watching Fiberon decking, really, really nice composite decking being made, whereas two extrusion lines over, Veranda was being made. It's manufactured by the same people, but it's got the Veranda name on it. And what's the difference? Well, the chemical composition is a little bit different. The extrusion speed is a little bit different. The, um, the polyethylene uh, layer on the outside is a little bit thinner because the extruder is running faster. They have made some changes to the manufacturing process in order to meet a price point by Home Depot in order to sell Veranda at a certain price. So <clears throat> even though it says Veranda, it's actually manufactured by Fiberon. And the same thing will happen. You will see Home Depot panels that have a Columbia Forest stamp on it, but a lot of times there's a different brand name. There's a Home Depot brand name, or you have to look real close at the label and you know it's, it's a Home Depot brand hardwood plywood by Columbia Forest products. That is a specific line of material that has been run and created on a specific production line in order to meet a price point. And it will not be the same panel that you might find somewhere else. This is why you may go and you may see stop picking on Columbia Forest. You might see a state's industries panel that is $80 one place, then you go to another place and it's suddenly $50. And the panel looks the same, and it probably is very close, but some corners have been cut in order to meet a price point for a large retailer. So just as I said, Amazon may be gobbling up some of the, the shipping and logistics resources because people want their business. Companies who want Home Depot and Lowe's business are trying to make it work and trying to meet a price point that is being dictated to them by a large retailer because frankly, that large retailer has the ability, has the authority, has the, you know, the weight to throw around to be able to say, no, we want a panel at $50. So yeah, I hate to tell you that. Unfortunately, the, the solution to where to get good plywood is always going to be, you know, it depends. It's going to be a tough solution for you. And I still recommend going the like millwork or local cabinet house and seeing if you can't kind of piggyback on their orders or grab some of their leftovers. That's still going to be your better option there. So um, I had an email that came in from Andy that was a little bit of feedback on my um, things all wood species do, specifically on the color change issue. Hey, Shannon, this is Andy in central Pennsylvania. Second time I've called in the show. Love every single episode. I'm going to be upping my Patreon to walnut level because, yeah, I do kind of want to, want to annoy you with the walnut and maple because I make a lot of projects with it. Um, but in all seriousness, you are to the woodworking community what Alton Brown is to the, to the uh, Food Network as far as doing those wonderful deep dives uh, on the science, even the chemistry 
that makes what we uh, make tick. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to um, ask a kind of a follow up to this uh, episode on um, light exposure and uh, with kind of a nod to the upcoming episode on um, wood movement. So I have recently, like within the last week, suddenly had a um, explosion in my business um, because of a design that's, um, um, let's just say it's in the um, archival framing community. And so I'm having to learn uh, very quickly what the standards are to produce a product that will go along with things like acid-free backing board and 99% UV uh, glass and the sizing and the standards and matting and all that kind of thing. So I happen to be on the phone today uh, for quite a long time with a leading expert who's literally written the book on archiving um, and framing. And a couple things came out of that. And, and you know, one was um, where I might source plexiglass that's 99% UV, but it got me thinking after hearing your show it sounds like there's not necessarily a finish on the market that's going to guarantee a, a 93 to 99% UV protection for my frames. Um, obviously, as you, you noted, inside use is going to be a lot different than you know what's happening on a deck outside. But even so, I'm getting into a really, really picky, finely tuned market where if I can say, oh, and even your wood is protected um, by this finish, um, that would be a benefit. I just, I'm, I'm skeptical that that's the thing I'm going to be able to, to claim, but it's, it's also the kind of thing where if this is what's available, then I can just say that's what's available. Again, thank you so much for the show. I've gotten more value from this podcast, um, than just about anything else I've, I've listened to, and I'm really glad to help keep it going. So have a great day. Buy some lumber. Well, thank you, Andy. Alton Brown of Woodworking, huh? I can't wait to tell my wife that one. That's a good one. Um, also, Andy uh, had some other information in there uh, about wood movement, specifically uh, the uh, framing expert he was talking to said, you know, be aware you need some room to play in your frames because paper moves, you know, seasonally. And he just said, yeah, uh, kind of smiled to himself. Yeah, it's made out of wood. <laughs> so you know, I may, we might actually revisit that in the upcoming wood movement episode here. But yes, um, here's the thing. You want to talk about you're trying to find a color fast finish. Well, certainly from an interior perspective, that's going to be a lot easier to deal with than it would be exterior. But here's the other thing. If you're talking about frames and artwork going in galleries, they are under intense lights. And a lot of um, a lot of these uh, uh, galleries are trying to go for a natural color, daylight color, things like that. That can be pretty intense on, on fading as well. You're not going to be able to get the same kind of, well, here's the other thing is they're not UV lights. You know, <laughs> maybe they are, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure why you would have UV grow lights. Um, and, you, and maybe it's a front for some other kind of growing. I don't know, but it, it's not the same UV that's going to cause the fading and the color changing that you would see out in direct sunlight. Now, if you are talking about, you know, out near a front window, even then it's less because the glass is going, the glass is going to cut some of the UVA light, some of the UVA rays. But here's one thing that you can do. Uh, a finish that is going to protect um, against UV, about, uh, against color fading, is going to be one that's heavy in solids. So bits of pigment, in other words. So stains and dyes. 
that or paint, <laughs> you know, paint's really good, good and color fast. Certainly it will fade over time. Um, if you've ever had to repaint your house, you know this, but paint is, is really good at that. So maybe, maybe you don't want to paint your frames, but you look at a lot of the frames in galleries and they have, you know, gold and silver and, you know, it's not gold frame. It's not a silver frame. It's usually a wooden frame that has a gold paint or a gold leaf if it's really fancy over top of it. So here's the thing. If your frames are going to be, say, walnut or cherry, um, they don't necessarily have to be actually walnut or cherry. They could be made out of poplar with a walnut colored dye or a cherry colored dye over top of it and then a clear coat finish on top of that. And I specifically say dye rather than stain because dye is much, much smaller particulates and it's gonna give you a more even homogenized color but it's also gonna give you a greater level of protection. With smaller particles comes a more uniform layer of solids, particulates, AKA pigment or dirt over top of your, your wood that's going to block that light a lot more. As it fades, here's the other thing, as it fades, because it certainly will, it's going to fade more uniformly. Wood does not fade uniformly because wood is a very organic material that has a lot of different things going on between density of the grain from one growth ring to another to the, the actual cut, whether you're looking at a riff sawn face, a, a quartered face, flat sawn face, or a little bit of all three, it's gonna fade differently there because of the very densities. If you kind of level the playing field by throwing a layer of dye over top of that, sealing that dye with something like shellac and then putting another top coat, um, a high solid, say polyurethane over top of it, you're going to have a much better long lasting color on that frame than if you didn't. So the answer really is paint it, <laughs> paint your wood. You're just painting it with a dye and you're going with a natural color rather than you know using Dayglow Pink or something like that. I hope that helps. Certainly, you might have to do some experimentation here. You could use some marine varnishes and high quality, high uh, solid content spar varnishes, and due to the lower UV intensity inside, you might be okay. The other thing you can look at is woods that actually only get prettier the more they age. You know, I found that cherry just gets deeper and browner um, and actually looks better other other. Um, over longer periods of oxidization, walnut as well starts to look good. You're really not gonna see frames inside turn gray, not for many, 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 many years. Sound like Commandant Lassard there. So anyway, I hope that helps, um, but rather than UV resistance, I think you might just have a better finished product that for a particularly picky customer may want a more homogenized looking frame anyway, because Frame is not about the frame, right? The frame is about what's inside the frame. So you probably want your frames to be as understated on the color variation as possible, in which case a dye is your best solution there. Okay, moving on to my next question. Eric wrote in to me about um, a piece of plywood that he found in uh, an old desk. He said, I have a desk that's at least 30 years old, but probably a lot older, I picked it up on the street, that has a top made from an odd plywood. It's three quarter inches thick with a lumber core with a layer of 16th and 132nd veneer on each side. It's not that weird, but the top surface of the desk has some sort of metal foil between the two veneer layers. Something I've never heard of and can't figure out why you do that. Have you ever heard of such a thing and what could it be used for? Absolutely. Aluminum foil is, is used in plywood as a vapor barrier. It's usually an exterior grade uh, plywood. So you've got your, your veneer, um, usually a couple of layers 
of a veneer or, or, or you know, a, a face veneer and then some sort of inner ply um, and then a foil layer. And then the, the plywood carries on from there. That foil protects against seasonal movement um, because it provides that vapor barrier to prevent exchange of moisture from the outside exterior um, of that door, let's say, to the interior. It can be a bit of an insulation thing, but more than anything, it is a vapor barrier. How well do they work? You know, I don't know. I can tell you that most of the companies that I know that use that aluminum foil there are are uh, companies that make import plywood that are generally of a lower quality to begin with. So the problems we may have with that plywood may not be because the foil has failed. That's a tough one to say, but more that the panel itself failed. Um, I don't know how much is used today. It is typical to see in an older piece of furniture like that um, because there are other products now being used for exterior more um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like polycarbons and, and cool plastics and things like that over foil that just end up doing a better job. But that's what you're looking at is an exterior piece of plywood. Chris had an interesting question on CITES. He said, um, you've mentioned um, the issues related to the export of old stock CITES listed lumber that would be otherwise grandfathered within the U.S., but I've heard a few stories of people having their auction-bought vintage planes seized at the border because they have rosewood knobs and totes. Is this really a thing? It's a finished good. Uh, it's an antique. So are there any legal grounds for this to happen? Would it apply to antique furniture made from CITES-listed species as well? Now, the easy answer on this, Chris, is yes, it does apply. Yes, it is something that happens. Um, but it's also something that can be overlooked, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I've talked about this in the past where uh, a lot of the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Laundered lumber coming out of China and specifically out of the far Eastern Russia, right on the border with China, where the lumber comes across the border from Russia, from the Boreal forests. It's turned into boards in China and then quickly manufactured into furniture and shipped out that way. And the lumber is, is hidden within the furniture because while moving lumber from China may get four or five glances, moving furniture from China, who is a major exporter of furniture, doesn't get looked at or it can get lost in the shuffle. And it's a way of laundering, if you will, that material that comes out of China. But it is not unheard of to have material at least being inspected and seized if it's made from antique materials. There is something known as a CITES passport. And this is very, very common for musicians. You know, you think about a lot of guitars that use a lot of CITES listed species, whether they're antique or just got it from Paul Reed Smith guitars two days ago, it uses a lot of CITES listed material. Now, PRS guitars may have all the CITES documentation, Taylor may have all the CITES documentation, but as the owner of that guitar, you were probably issued a CITES passport, which is basically a continuation of the manufacturer's CITES paperwork to say, now this product was made with a CITES approved species. You will also find in the instance of antiques, many, um, I've got several friends who play professionally for orchestras that have gorgeous old violins. And those violins are made out of material that was not CITES listed then, but is CITES listed now. And you better believe they have a CITES passport for that. Because you think about the typical symphonic orchestra is doing a fair amount of traveling. When they're off season, they may be traveling internationally all the time and they are crossing borders with CITES species in their instruments, whether it be a violin or a piano. Well, maybe not a piano. 
piano. Yeah, some people are shipping their pianos. But mostly we're talking about the string instruments that are the real issues that have a lot of different rosewoods in them, ebonies in the fretboards and things like that. So that CITES Passport is, is acquired for that particular product. And in some instances, if it's an antique, it's it's... You know, the CITES passport process is quite easy because you say, okay, well, this was manufactured. I have, I, you know, I can prove that it was manufactured 300 years ago. Okay, it's grandfathered in. Here's your CITES passport, which basically says this is grandfathered in. And the more instant things, like I was talking about with like electric guitars or acoustic guitars made from modern manufacturers, the CITES passport is issued because you can track the paperwork through the manufacturer. And you know, that, that manufacturer had to have that in order to get the material in and in order to, to show the legitimacy in their own operation. Same thing can be acquired for furniture. And if it were something that you were concerned about, say you want an auction of a bunch of material, you would probably want to apply to for a CITES passport. And you may be told it's not necessary, in which case you take that in writing when you're bringing it in. If somebody wants to seize it, you can say, here you go. Here's the CITES people saying it's not necessary for a CITES passport. Or they're telling you, here's your CITES passport and you're okay. But it is absolutely something that does happen. It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but it can happen. And technically, legally, CITES can do that. So there you go, Chris. Great question. So, as I mentioned earlier, I had a question sent in that was probably the easiest answer that I'll ever give. This is from John. John says, uh, I have a question about urban logging. There is a black walnut in my backyard and an English walnut in my uh, yard that um, are probably going to be taken down soon. So my question is, is it worthwhile to pay to have these sawn into lumber? They are both healthy, beautiful city trees with trunks about 30 inches in diameter. Easiest question I'll ever answer, John. Hell yes, you want those milled into lumber. You know, I talked a couple episodes or maybe the last episode about how the price of cherry has plummeted because the demand for it has gone down so much. Walnut's gone the opposite direction. The demand for walnut is through the roof right now and the cost for walnut continue to climb. And just personally, walnut's my favorite wood to work with. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. English walnut, oh my God, that's great stuff. Um, these old yard trees, I mean, if they're 30 inches in diameter, they're, they're, they're not youngins. Um, they're going to have all kinds of figure, all kinds of great character in there. I mean, walnut itself is a, is a branchy tree to begin with, but absolutely. If those trees have to come down, I mean, I'm not recommending take down the tree for no other reason, but he goes on and talks about how they're, they are, um, somewhat dangerous, uh, in the way they set on the property line. So it's highly possible. These are going to come down. You absolutely, when they come down, you want to make sure that whomever you engage to fell those trees is well aware that you plan to make lumber out of them. So they'll, they will take the tree down in a more cautious manner rather than just kind of bucking it as they move down. You're going to try to manage or maintain as much of that central bowl as possible. But hell yes, you want to saw that into lumber because that is going to be some gorgeous stuff. And if you don't use it, you probably could sell it for a nice tidy profit because man, walnut's expensive right now. So there we go, guys. Kind of an odd show. I really wanted to hit on some of those COVID issues because I've been getting questions about it, but I also wanted to kind of keep people up to date as we move through all this stuff. We're not out of the woods yet, and I hope that uh, things start to look up soon. I do appreciate the questions. Uh, just a reminder, I am putting together uh, a wood movement episode. I've already gotten some really good questions, but by all means, if you have questions regarding wood movement, send them in now because I've got a big new, new fancy 
official wood movement episode coming soon. So I hope to be able to feature as many questions as I can. And as always, thank you for sending in questions and thank you to the sponsors of the show. Um, Andy threw in that little pitch there who said he just raised his Patreon level. Andy, I appreciate that. I saw that you did that. Very, very nice. The show is certainly made possible by people who sponsor the show. It's also a great way to ask questions. So I sincerely appreciate everybody who has sponsored me on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash lumber update, you can find all the details there. But for now, folks, I'm going to shut up. Go buy some lumber. <laughs>